Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Well, we've got a uh, strange one today for a change. I'm a deadhead. I love the Grateful Dead. Uh, last week, I had Norm Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute on the erosion of, of norms and how that has led us to where we are today uh, in this country. The impeachment trial, of course, and I will talk about that in a moment. But this week's is a conversation with John Mayer who plays uh, with Dead and Company, the latest incarnation of the Grateful Dead. And um, he stepped in about five years ago to fill some uh, really big shoes, Jerry Garcia's. And I think we have a fascinating conversation, uh, you know, for a change, about John, who I had not heard of until he joined uh, Dead and Company. Evidently, he was a a very big star uh, before he joined uh, the dead. I'm a little clueless on pop culture. I uh, interviewed John at a resort in Mexico where 5,000 affluent deadheads uh, came for a four-day thing. Now, I uh, admit that I have an emotional connection to uh, the Grateful Dead. It reminds me of my old partner, uh, Tom Davis, who introduced me to the dead, and we went to a lot of shows together. So did Franny and I, and uh, actually took my daughter to a number of shows. Um, she got to meet Jerry. Actually, Thomason called the encore at a, at a concert at the Meadowlands. You know, everyone was calling this long, long, long shouting for the encore, and Thomason. I think turned to Lesh and said, uh, the bass player, and uh, said, could you do uh, Box of Rain? And Jerry just went like, yeah, let's do that. And I hadn't done it in a while, but that was the encore. And it was amazing because there's like 80,000 people there. And people just went nuts because they hadn't heard it in a while. And actually, uh, Phil went up on a lyric and so I've actually heard this. I know this version when I listen to uh, 23 on Sirius uh, XM and listen to the dead. I've heard the uh, box of rain that she called at the Meadowlands. So uh, we'll get to that conversation in a, in a few minutes. So what makes this a strange one is that I've been watching the impeachment trial in the Senate. Now, I don't know where this is going. I'm recording this on the Thursday uh, of the second day of questioning. You know, senators are asking questions. Here's a question I would have asked, and I would have done to the, the White House counsel. 
Do you have any evidence that Donald Trump has ever been interested in corruption? And by that, I mean being against it. (sighs) Okay. Now, I know it depresses people to watch it, but I'm angry at almost everybody there. But let me talk about my Republican former colleagues. Uh, Some of them are my friends, and I've been uh, keeping in touch uh, with a number of them. When the New York Times came out with with, uh, the stuff that was in in Bolton's book, one of my friends, the Republican friend, said, okay, I guess we have to call witnesses. And I know he's not going to. I'm not going to say who it is. By the way, one of them who I texted, texted me during while he was supposed to be there, and I guess he was, and I said, you're not supposed to have the phone. And he, he texted back, I know. And I, I said, well, I think I could get you jail time. Anyway, I had this other friend, uh, friend, I guess, I don't know if he's my friend anymore, wrote me back saying, I, we have to call witnesses. Because we have to know the truth. We have to know this. And he ain't going to vote for having witnesses. And I went out on a limb and wrote a tweet right after that. And I said, there are some Republicans in the Senate who are morally serious people. Mitch McConnell is not one of them. But let's see if there are four. And the response I got, uh, a lot of people liked that tweet. Tens of thousands, but some people said, what? There aren't any morally serious Republicans. And I didn't respond, but I guess I'm wrong. I think Romney has taken a principled stance, but he can. And Collins will probably, I mean, this is, again, the Thursday before the vote. Collins will vote for witnesses because McConnell will give her that pass. And she's underwater in Maine, and she should be. And Murkowski, he'll give them three. That'll be it. And uh, so I don't, I was, I think I was wrong. I think I was wrong. I don't think there are morally serious friends of mine in the Senate. And I say that with, uh, I don't take any joy in that at all. I don't. Okay. Uh, I watched this and just, just became furious at them. Just the White House counsel lying. Uh, it was funny, this uh, guy Philbin, who is one of one of the team, uh, at one point, he was asked, at any time did the president say anything ever about Hunter Biden and uh, Joe Biden and Ukraine uh, before Joe Biden started running for president? Well, of course he didn't. Of course not. So here Philbin says that Oh, well, um, we are uh, confined by just talking about the record. I think it's important at the outset to frame the answer by 
bearing in mind I'm limited to what's in the record, and what's in the record is determined by what the House of Representatives sought. It was their uh, proceeding. They were the ones who ran it. They were the ones who called the witnesses. So part of the question refers to conversations between President Trump and other cabinet members and others like that. That's, there's not something in the record on that. It wasn't thoroughly pursued in the record. So I can't point to something in the record that shows President Trump at an earlier time mentioning specifically something related to Joe or Hunter Biden. Okay, that is a total lie. And they, they talk about things that aren't in the record all the time. So basically, you know that Donald Trump, has he ever been interested in corruption? Well, I got a degree from Trump University in anti-corruption. And I was very happy to contribute to the Trump Foundation's uh, fund, the Fight Corruption. Uh, In this book, A Very uh, Stable Genius, by a couple of reporters from uh, the Washington Post, they quote, Tillerson saying that Trump is for getting rid of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Now, what does that do? Well, that prohibits Americans from bribing officials overseas. And this is a quote from the book. This is what he told Tillerson. It's just so unfair that American companies aren't allowed to pay bribes to get business overseas. I mean, there there is a reason for the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and actually, we benefit by that because around the world, they think we don't pay bribes as much. Okay, I'll, g- I'll give you an example. Germany is contracted to do a terminal at the Manila Airport in the Philippines. They have to bribe a lot of people in the Philippine government. Now, at the end of all this, the Philippines sues the German company because the terminal isn't up to specifications. And the reason it isn't up to specifications is they spent so much money bribing the Philippine government officials. And then the Philippine government is suing the Germans. Jesus. There's a reason for this. This guy is so corrupt. Donald Trump is nothing. He's corrupt every day of his life. His life is corruption. His dad corruptly passed the kids hundreds of millions of dollars in very well documented in the New York Times. He just is. Okay, you don't you don't. You know that. You know that. The Republicans have been amazing. Rand Paul wanted to out the whistleblower. At least the chief justice wouldn't allow him to do that. There's a reason you keep who the whistleblower is anonymous. That way you'll have whistleblowers. My God. Dershowitz. 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 Holy moly. Okay, he takes a stance that a president can do anything he wants 
overseas, if he thinks it will be good for the United States, and if it's about him getting reelected, then and and he thinks that's good for the United States, then he could do anything. So l- listen to this. And if a president does something which he believes will help him get elected in the public interest, that cannot be the kind of quid pro quo that results in impeachment. Okay, this deserved an answer. And Adam Schiff, who, by the way, has been just brilliant throughout this whole thing, he comes back uh, to Dershowitz with this. There are two arguments that uh, Professor Dershowitz makes. One that is, I have to say, a very odd argument for a criminal defense lawyer to make, and that is it is highly unusual to have a discussion in a trial about the defendant's state of mind, intent, or mens rea. In every courtroom in America, in every criminal case, or almost every criminal case, except for a very small sliver that are strict liability, the question of the defendant's intent and state of mind is always an issue. So this is nothing novel here. You don't require a mind reader. In every criminal case, and I would assume in every impeachment case, yes, you have to show that the president was operating from a corrupt motive, and we have. One of the other things is this guy, uh, Sekolo. He basically just threatened that if you call witnesses, we are going to just string this out. And they are so fucking hypocritical on everything. They go like, uh, well, you could have gone to court to break this block that Trump had on anyone testifying. Well, that would have been tied up forever. And now they're saying, well, you know, we're having an election coming up, so why do this? Because the American people, we're we're going into the election. If we have witnesses, it'll get closer to the election. And then they say, if you call Bolton, or if we get Bolton, then we're going to get our witnesses. We're going to call Hunter Biden. We get to have our witnesses. And by the way, then, maybe we should get Jared, huh? And Ivanka. Wow. I mean, talk about your kids. I mean, all his kids are going flying around the world on our dime. He gave what were Jared's qualifications to broker peace in Israel? And also, how's that going? How's that going? Ivanka and Jared, according to uh, AP, have taken in as much as $135 million in revenue just during their second year as aides uh, to President Trump. And that's from their vast uh, real estate holdings, which, by the way, uh, Kushner has been getting investments from, oh, uh, Israeli businessmen. The New York Times reported that Kushner had partnered with Raz Steinmetz a member of one of uh, Israel's wealthiest families in purchasing $190 million worth of apartment buildings in several lower Manhattan neighborhoods. Uh, it, It goes on and on and on. He failed to list his holdings and had to correct his holdings 
Qatar made a huge investment in their, his family's turkey of a building on Fifth Avenue. Man, Hunter Biden is a piker compared to Jared and Ivanka. Remember in 2018 when China gave approval for her to get 16 trademarks, bringing the total number of trademarks that China's trademark office had approved to 34. And she makes money off of those. One of the house uh, managers um, said that, well, we're not going to get into that because we don't want to get into people's kids. Well, wait a minute. First of all, Hunter <laughs> Biden is is <clears throat> Vice President Biden's kid. But I just felt like, uh, okay, uh, we know our kids are going to get stuff too, so we don't want to get into this. So uh, that's off off base. <sighs> okay, uh, you know, you don't want to uh, hear me vent. I mean... I guess. And we should go to the uh, conversation with uh, John Mayer. Again, I record this this one on a Thursday. By the time you're listening to this, and this is a, a radio show, but it's also a podcast, and people will listen to this years from now, hopefully. And um, they'll know what happened. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm afraid. Okay, enough of this shit. Enough of this shit. Let's have fun with the Grateful Dead and, uh, and listen to my, uh, my conversation with John Mayer. Before we start the interview, let me just uh, say one thing. Uh, I'm not good technically, and I, just, I was alone. I didn't have any, uh, any producer or engineer with me, and uh, I kind of fucked up. And there's just a little part of this in the, in the middle the, the sound quality changes a bit because I just I did back it up on my iPhone and there's a little bit of the interview on, on the iPhone, but we felt that stuff was actually important and it's not so bad. And by the way, it was uh, John, John Mayer, who told me to back it up. So um, anyway, I think you're I think you're going to enjoy this. Did you know that learning actually makes a sound? It's true. Listen. That's the sound of you learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. For example, let's say you're in Berlin and you want to visit the Fuhrer bunker. It's pretty simple, actually. Wo ist der Führer Bunker? Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Here is a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L 
com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I met you at Fairly Well. That's the first time I set eyes on John Mayer. And it's the first time I heard your name. Oh, so that's cool. I do not know. I'm a deadhead. Mm-hmm. As far as music is concerned, I'm a little stuck. A uh, little stuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, Stones, Clapton, some blues. So mm-hmm. there, there's... Blues where it merges with rock for you. You know, you're, uh, that's what it sounds like you're saying. Yeah, but, you know... Yeah, I mean, Howlin' Wolf. Okay, that's blues. You know, B.B. King, who I love, never sang while playing. While playing. He would sing and then play and then sing and then play. Yep. Now, that's funny to me. And that's not funny. I mean, it's just um, you sing and play at the same time. I sing and play at the same time. When I was growing up, I made that a point to learn how to sort of separate my brain in a way that my hands could go at the same time as my voice. And they do. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> that's very, that's very, <laughs> very much Glick. So. And they do. Oh, very much so. <laughs> very much so. Yeah, I liked the, I liked the idea. Well, because when I was growing up, it was just me in a room playing. And it was all about how can you... So you were a kid with a guitar. I was a kid with a guitar, and I knew I was just one person. But isn't that more or less how most people start? Or do they start with a family band? No, they, no longer. <laughs> no, mean, now, now people go their whole career alone. So Ed Sheeran's on stage alone. But now there's this thing where, like, you'll listen to a band and you'll realize that band is just one guy who's done it all in his room. Okay, so the reason I did not know you uh, and who you are, when I met you, the day I met you, and you were at uh, Soldier's Field in Chicago for the Fairly Well concerts, and Bob Weir introduced you. Let's talk about the people who went, John Mayer. Mm-hmm. He's like a pop singer. He can't fill in for Jerry. What the fuck is that? Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, you when, what was the first you of you listening to The Dead where you went like, holy shit? It was Althea. And it's sort of like well documented. I, was, I had some like Neil Young Pandora on or something. And, um, and I heard Althea from maybe like Live Without a Net or something. And I just my heard, favorite Althea is Nassau Coliseum, the live at Nassau Coliseum. Do you know that one? I don't. I don't know the Althea's by date. I just know when I hear a good one. You know what I should do? I should stop this at one point, and I'll play you his his solo at the end for that Althea. And I had written a book, and I was promoting it on the Dead Twenty Three channel, mm-hmm. and I did phone interviews with Mickey and Billy and Bobby mm-hmm. at the time. And I said to Mickey, why, don't, why didn't you just always do that from then on? 
because this to me was the most hair-raising Althea. And Mickey said, well, that's just completely, you know, the opposite of who we are. I mean, Mm -hmm. that is antithetical to everything we do. It's Mm -hmm. all about capturing lightning in the bottle. That's not what we do. Next time I'm with Billy, he says, no, 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 we don't do that. Um, that that's just absolutely against our... It's our catch thing. and release. Okay. I talked to Bobby, and Bobby said, it was not for want of trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I went like, oh, you did listen to it and did go, let's do that again, and you couldn't. That's what he said. And he confirmed that. That's what he said. I learned something very interesting and valuable when I first started playing with these guys. I had thought the sound of the Grateful Dead was uh, a self-aware invention. Mm-hmm. That they had reached because they had the idea to sound like that. And then when I got to really know these guys and play with them, I realized that the sound of the Grateful Dead is some misinterpretation in the attempt to sound exactly like Wilson Pickett or exactly like, you know... Texas Playboys, or exactly like whatever the muse was for whatever song they had. And I was blown away by that, because where they did end up, to me, is far more sophisticated on a musical level. So, is that what you were doing at, like, when you were first I thought that they were were kind of going like, okay, this one I sound like this, and this one I sound like that. I thought it was completely intentional to create this nebulous thing. And then I learned that the more I get to know these guys and talk and play, the intention is to be uh, perfect. And what they end up with is something far more sophisticated than the success of being perfect, which is some other brand of interpretation. Their aspiration, I think, has always been to be on the same level as everyone they've ever looked up to artistically. And whatever the magic is that went into these, these guys misinterpreting or when they all got together. I'm really calling. Are you laughing because it sounds like, a, like I'm, I'm pulling a punch? No, it sounds like them to me. It sounds very much like them. But it also sounds funny to me because it does sound like a failure to do something. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Like maybe, maybe they went for the moon and they missed and discovered a new planet. And that's how, uh, oh man, you know. Sorry, yeah. I work in metaphors, Al. This is how it's going to oh, be. Oh no! But really, I mean, this is okay. They, they, in they, 1973, that would have been something I would have said to somebody. Okay, I think it was an effective metaphor, and I'm the first person <laughs> to shoot a hole through my own metaphors, and I thought that was effective. I'm well, standing you just up. Did. For it. You just did. So anyway, I was blown away by that. That that I think they all had in mind this this concept, this outline for what they were trying to go for. And then the, the, the tide carried them out to some other place. And I think that's why when you go up to Bob sometimes and you go, that was incredible. He has a different take on it because of his intention was de- his intention. Well, was last different. night you did the best wheel I've ever cool. heard. I love the wheel and I love Jerry's pedal steel in the way too. Jerry stopped playing, playing pedal steel because he said he wasn't good enough at pedal steel. Pedal steel is a fascinating instrument because it is really like flying a helicopter, but it's been done traditionally 
but it's like, like flying people a weather in a, helicopter no, or I mean, like it's, a nom? It's you're doing. <laughs> this requires a working knowledge of helicopters. Oh, okay. I don't have it. Okay, but knees and feet and hands and elbows and finger. I mean, your knees are involved in it. You're you're really? working all sorts of pad. That's the pedals. Well, I think, and then I, you're you're moving your knee laterally to move a pitch bender just for one of the strings, and so. It's always fascinated me that the pedal steel is one of the most complex instruments, but was always played on the front porch of these sort of lower kind of class places in the South and in, in the West. You'd have these people who go, I don't know nothing from nothing. But then they would sit down and play the pedal steel magically. Now, that always blew me away. The guitar is somewhat of a dummy's instrument. The pedal steel is not a dummy's instrument. It's kind of like Neanderthal pedal steel. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, the guitar is like the guitar to me. It, 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 it moves around. Well, the thing about the guitar is that whatever I'm thing I'm talking to a guitar player who believes what he does is Neanderthal something else. Well, maybe, maybe compared to the pedal steel, yes. Well, anyway, Jerry stopped playing it because he thought I'm not good enough at this. This is ridiculous. I shouldn't do this. And uh, people, some. Most deadheads know that he played uh, pedal steel on Teach, mm-hmm. which is isn't that beautiful. It's beautiful. It's world class playing too. You could have called any session guy and he wouldn't have played as well. No, well, that's one of the first things I learned from listening to Tales from the Golden Road was that that was Jerry playing on Teach, Teach Your Children. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and their hooks he's playing. He, you can sing along to those. Okay, let's talk about hooks <laughs> <laughs> because I would think. A big part of your transitioning to the, now I'm playing for the dead. Now I'm now I'm filling Jerry's shoes, though I can't. But I'm that's there's so many. There's a rhythm guitarist that's Bobby. <laughs> there's a lead guitarist that was Jerry, and now it's me. And there is this body of songs. This body of works. The songbook. How much of each song? is a hook and how much do you go like okay well i play that that's a hook yes i play that yes and um this is actually kind of a hook Uh because it goes between these two hooks i do i do as many of those as i can Mm -hmm. and then there's another hook so you could look at something like uh ramble on rose Mm -hmm. you know the hook is can't not play that right <laughs> right and, and, right and, and why would people be mad right <laughs> but that's not up for interpretation and then you've got you know uh did you say your name was that's a yep you know that's a hook you know and there's the vocal hooks, of course, but then there's another hook, which is like the intention. Uh-huh. And every song has a different intention that has to be played. So mm-hmm. there's a thing inside of Ramble on Rose, Rose is sort of a Charleston thing. So you can't just blow on, on that song any way you want. You have yeah. to play it with that M.O. Okay. Hell in a Bucket. The intention of Hell in a Bucket is chaos. 
I don't even know that I've discussed this with Bob, and I don't know if it annoys him or not that I play like a banshee on Hell, Hell in a Bucket. Would it help if I told him? Could you break it to him? Yes. That Hell in a Bucket's always going to be... You know what? I think I'm going to serve a very positive role here this week. <laughs> Arbitrator. Bobby. Bobby. Just Bobby. to let you know, I had a conversation with John. So, so hell in a bucket is, you're really going to hell with this song. You're trying to take the solo to so many RPMs that it just makes people crazy. Well, that's a whole different thing. You oh, that makes it. perfect sense. Right? We're going to hell in a bucket. You want to talk to him about it? No. <laughs> but every time I heard Jerry play on it, I went, oh, he's really giving it this chaos on the guitar. That I've always tried to put in it now. You, you can play as much as you want, and you should play as much as you want on Hell in a Bucket because that's the trip. Ah, you're, just, you're kind of holding on for dear life. And then you get into like uh, Standing on the Moon, and you mm. better think about nothing but Jerry being on the moon when you play that song. That, is, that was that's the only thing you better think about when you're thinking. That was gorgeous. Only and we all went into it. Yeah, right. And so that was, that was, that yeah. was it last night. Okay, in a solo. Mm-hmm. Again, in a solo, you've got to you've got to make some. You've, you've thought this through. Yes, I've thought it through enough now that I don't have to think about it all that oh, much. I had to play for several years in this band to finally get to the core of what I wanted to do on the guitar. I noticed. Did you? <laughs> well, that's a nasty thing. To no, say. it's okay. No, but I actually have noticed. Uh, a uh, evolution. Yeah, it, it and, had to and get and sweeter. That I enjoy more. Thank you, thank you. It had to, yeah, thank you. It it had to get sweeter. But that was a shitty thing. No, it's not a shitty thing to say. Well, it was meant to be. <laughs> Sorry, you missed the mark. Sorry, I'm so uh, self-effacing. No, but it, look, this was always to me, and always is going to be a process in trying to to get the right balance so that I can get the right sound out of the guitar so that I can get the right feeling out, all this stuff. And and there's no other way to get to now than to do your best for every show and try to find your, your space. And I think at the beginning, there was a lot of flapping my wings to stay airborne, like a lot of flapping my wings. And the person I am at home, I've always thought of it like this, like when I'm home thinking about the guitar, Oh my God, I'm the best guitar player in the galaxy. Whatever happens <laughs> in between the time where you leave your house and you begin to play on stage in front of people, <laughs> yeah. you have your entire reality changed. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what's handed to you is some different kind of, come on, come on, come on, everyone's watching. Let's not, let's make them happy. Let's make them happy. Let's produce for them. Let's make them, and your whole spirit changes. And what you end up doing is, and then you go back and you listen to it and I'll be in the car and I'll hear what sounds like Dan Company and I'll go, oh no, I think I remember this one. And I'll hear myself for a second go, and I go, stay there. I can, I, I, but I remember that I didn't. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'll remember everything I played if you play me back the song. I'll know exactly now, what I I don't mean. think that everybody who plays the guitar, and, and it depends which podcast you're listening to. If you're listening to the one on, on 23, there are probably a lot of people who play the guitar. Mm-hmm. I'll bet not, not even a uh, large plurality of them say, I am the best guitar player in the world. Correct. While they're at I don't say that. That's I thought you were just saying that. 
I think to but no, 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 no. no. <laughs> but I'll tell you what. I'll it. tell you what. No one thinks uh, Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Okay. When you're home okay. with a guitar in your lap. Yes. And you're thinking in terms of music and you're just connected to it and there's no outside influence. Your heart rate is resting. There are times you feel, and I think every guitar player has felt, oh, I can fly. Something happens when you get to the gig and it's, there's thousands of bodies in front of you. For some people, hundreds of bodies in front of you. Some people, dozens of bodies in front of you. Time changes. Your whole intentions get whipped around. The wind just moves everything around. And now you're going, where is it? Where, where is the thing I okay, had? Okay, but I bet you there are as many or some or a certain percentage of uh, where it's the opposite. They get in front of that crowd and they can feel the ground. And they're feeling like, fuck, this is great. Not, not, it wouldn't happen with this music or this band. Really? Too many crosswinds. There's so much crosswind going on. You have to listen to what each person is playing. You, because that's what's happening out in the crowd. What, what, is a sort of ease? Well, well they're going like, this is the greatest thing. Yes. Up there, for me, it is a constant low-grade deliberation <laughs> process. <laughs> you know what the Grateful Dead is, man? They're just up there. And they are just, you know, feeling it, playing it. And they are just flying. Yeah. And that's how I feel down here. So that's what they must be thinking. On a good day, yes. Okay. Well, that's different. No, what you're On right a now. great day, yes. Um... I do think that what, what is great about playing an instrument is when you're alone at home, if you're playing in front of the mirror, you are allowed to say, I, don't, I, I, I just am in love with what I'm doing right now. I just am having such a blast. My ideas are coursing through my veins. And when you get up there and you have five other instrumentalists who have had five separate days, five separate days in one day, you've got six people coming from six different starts to their day, six different ideas, six different... Uh, fitful sleeps or not fitful sleep you get up there and then you also have thousands of people going come on you will find that you you have to reestablish what it feels like to be a musician up there and that takes years okay so that took me years what if you're doing a solo again what if you're doing there's already kind of a conversion that's taken place before they've walked in the room there's like a they're, they're already into what you're doing they're there because they found something you did on a record exciting enough to want to come people see people aren't walking into it Den Company concert, same way? Yeah, but it's up, but it's a different role for me. I'm not, I'm a part of it. I'm not it. I have to always just contribute. I'm only ever contributing. And the thing I want to contribute has 0.000% to do with my ego, my image, how I'm thought about, how I'm thought, my only, well, it's good, I mean, that's, oh, it's that's, amazing. That's the only, it's the thing the only thing I'm thinking about is because getting. If you're doing the other thing. <laughs> no, and maybe I in the first few years you could hear that or something. I had to knock that out of me. Okay. Okay. This is Al. This is me. I'm in the studio now. Uh, at this point, John figured out that we weren't recording on the uh, the proper device, and uh, so when we come back, you will. Uh, the good sound will be back. The good sound will be back. And uh, when we pick up, I'll be talking about myself. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. 
Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. We're back, and uh, we're going to rejoin uh, my conversation with John Mayer. And, and uh, I'm talking about myself uh, when, when you come back, so that happens. And speaking of myself, I'm going to be on uh, Jimmy Kimmel on uh, Tuesday, uh, February 4th. So that's going to be the night of the State of the Union address. And I think we're starting the taping a little late, so I can watch that. And it'll be the also the evening, uh, night after uh, the Iowa caucuses. And I don't know exactly where the impeachment will be there. So we'll have I'll have a lot to talk about on on Jimmy's show. Anyway, let's uh, let's go back with John Mayer. I'm there. I've been uh, in the Senate for a week or two. Harry asked me up give it to talk, right? Give uh, to talk to the caucus at lunch. Do it. Huge applause. I come back to my seat at my table. I'm sitting next to Diane Feinstein. She's standing. She says to me, "You know, when you first came here." I thought you were going to be stupid. And I said, um, why? Well, isn't that analogous, real quick, I don't mean to cut you off, <laughs> but isn't that analogous to when I first heard you were joining Dead & Company, I thought you were going to be stupid? No. I thought it was going to sound stupid? No, I thought, like, I don't know, John May. I didn't even have any reason to believe you would sound stupid. I didn't know anything about it. I actually, when Bobby introduced me to you, I went, "Okay, it must make sense." Well, that's that's you were actually much further down the line than people who had, you know, probably had a brush with me in passing on this song or that song or that gossip story or this thing. Yeah, but I I spent my whole life being <laughs> being um sort of mislabeled. So by the time I got to Dead and Company. Uh, and, and deadheads are a huge, huge crowd. They make up a, a really sizable part of the country, but not as big as the tabloid media side of the country. I mean, that's a oh, much that's larger like... army. So I had been tempered in the tabloid media kind of doubt. I was just used to that. So by the time I got into the dead world, I was like, I can take it. I can take it. I've been, I've, I've handled a lot more pressure. And, mm -hmm. um, and I also knew... I'm very self-aware of the way that people see me and what I've given the world or what I used to give the world to operate with. So I knew that based on what I put out and the attitude that I would presented to the world uh, sometimes, 
would make people scratch their heads. But I also knew that because we had already started playing together and I started hearing the sound, I was like, okay, nobody can hear this yet because it's not there yet. But I know that. And, and, and now. Let's go cut to now. This Great. has been three years? Five years. Five fucking years. Okay, five years. It's yeah. been five years. That's how long. Yeah. Okay, so it's been It'll five, be, yeah, five years. years. There's none of that now. Is there? Or is there? No, there's none of it now. And yeah. I like that. People people have moved on to criticizing other elements of it or this or that or goofing on it or making memes. And I I look at it like... But I mean, of, of your playing, just, just the no, playing in the dead. Play, I've, I've of, of deadheads, are there deadheads who go oh, like... Oh, yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah, but I look at it more than ever like I'm an athlete playing on a team. And you are allowed to quarterback from wherever you want a quarterback and you can say, I think his throwing arm's getting weaker or I think this and that or I think that injury really... T oh, I think he's got no IQ when it comes to this play or that play. So, I mean, I've read things where people have thought that the blues element was too strong. And that's one of the things... I don't believe that every negative comment is hate. No, the blues element is uh, is uh, is there, but I've heard, but I've heard different comments. Than Trey, like but Trey, I think less bluesy. But I right? think that some of the negative comments can be productive, can be constructive, I should say. So when I started seeing, like the before the fall tour, I saw one meme that really, I wouldn't say it hurt my feelings, but I went, oh, and it had to do with the idea of me playing stock blues licks oh, over these songs yep. mm -hmm. and i went oh okay all right i can adapt i can i can adapt to that i promptly unfollowed the person who had posted the meme because i don't need that with breakfast i went okay i'm unfollowing you but you're right and mm -hmm. have tried oh, you felt they were right oh yeah oh okay see i think there's something that's happening lately where everything that's n not even negative but critical is being perceived as hate and being negated before it's ever considered. So what happens is audiences sometimes are right about something and the creator can hear it and now they go, ah, you can't make everyone happy. But I go, hold on, there's, there's, there might be something constructive in there. And you have to be strong enough to look at it and go, yeah, he's right about that. I do oh, sometimes. That sounds too open-minded and productive. <laughs> the, the idea that, okay, you know, social media has just gotten so toxic and everything's awful. Every once in a while, someone says something that is very true. Uh, but often, yeah, often no, people, but I can parse it. But Al, you can tell in the first five words that oh, someone yeah. posts whether it should be listened to or not. You, you felt that it was legitimate to say, okay, he's playing too many standard blues licks or... Let me take that back onto the stage and see what I can do with that. Mm -hmm. And I thought the fall tour, and especially the two San Francisco shows around New Year's, was for me like the first time I got on stage what I was going for in my head in the car. In terms of that, what I wanted to be as a everything. guitar player, how I wanted to express myself on the guitar. So, what what, what point? How, how many years have you been? That's, had you I been mean, playing? Four years of being in. Of, we finished our fourth year of playing. I'm uh, beginning our fifth year of playing, and I finally got where I wanted to get on the guitar tonally, intentionally, and now here's the great part about it. I played what I thought were some of my best performances of my life on those two San Francisco shows. And then I was back to playing like I didn't want to play last night. And that's... Really? Yeah. The wind was just... The wind was so strong on stage. 
that it was blowing the sound around. Uh-huh. And it was the wind whipping against my skin was creating this kind of frenetic pace of things, even though I didn't, we're on a beach. And, then, and it's gorgeous, but the wind was going against. And I'm like, oh, I'm right back to having to work again to find that place to where it's sweet and musical. Can they, can they do something on... Uh, Maybe a Gore-Tex? On the, st- on, the st- on the stage? Can they're just going to have to figure out how to play through it and how to... So that's well, why... What, I, what about putting like a, uh, a wall behind it you? It would blow so. the wall down. Oh. <laughs> Maybe some Tyvek that's perforated or something. Okay, no, I but see. I mean, like, the point I'm trying to make is that even if you had one great night and you put everything together in the right order, you have to dismantle it. And you have to do it again somewhere else, and you have to start kind of from now, scratch. Is this, is this you, or is this the dead thinking, or is that? This is or, me thinking about making sure my contribution is as strong as it can be, so that people can get where they want to get with the music. But in like other words, crowd. are you? Is this just you from you from the beginning, or is if you picked this no, I kind of up, up from the dead? I picked it up from the dead because okay, that's what I want. Because that's this is bigger than me. Which I love. It changed my life. That part of it changed my life. What do you mean by that? Before this band, I was me all the time. Mm-hmm. 100% me. And everything I did was an extension of 100% me. And you are it, and it is you, and you're your brand, and your work is you, and you are your work, and you represent it all everywhere you go. And that got a little bit claustrophobic for me after a while. I didn't know quite... like. I'm not giving you this, this sort of rote story about fame or whatever, but I just, when you're you all the time, you start to lose a little bit of perspective. And for and, me... And maybe you lose yourself. A little... I can't tell with you. <laughs> I, I didn't know whether I was doing either. I, I didn't know whether... I can't quite tell. That's the thing. But that's what comedians do. No, sometimes they you're a like, sharp Maybe blade. you're losing a little maybe of yourself. yourself. Well, by being a celebrity. Um, when it's always your party... And you're always yeah. the DJ. Mm-hmm. You don't quite ever get to hang out. You're always queuing up the next song. Wow. You know? Okay. And for me to be just... This is gold, by the gold, way. Gold, keep it going. <laughs> for me to have to wear a laminate... Okay, what's this one? <laughs> you know, I get to... I walk on the stage with a laminate on. Oh, I see. I'm part of... Uh, of, you know, you're um, part of something as I'm opposed part of something to being of, the thing. I'm just, I just have access to the thing. And this, this is what I say now. I go, I'm not the thing. Well, thanks for, uh, uh, you know, making sure that a good 30 minutes of this was on the actual. No, you got it. You it, even, by the way, it wouldn't be dissimilar from a Grateful Dead concert recording where the tape runs out and they have to use audience the tape audience, for somebody that from part. the audience have you heard this where you'll be listening to a, a version with a great tape and the tape will run out and it switches to the audio feed the audience feed and uh-huh. then it switches back to the tape well that's feed. what we're doing that's what we're doing here that's what we are that's what we did yep wow alrighty well, I'm looking forward to it tonight I think it's going to be fun because I see I see a three show run as three chances to get where you're going the right way and haven't you found that if the second show in a three-show run is phenomenal. It changes the ultimate read on what all three shows were. Don't you feel like on a three-show run, the verdict is still out on the first show based on how the next two shows go? So you'll leave going, those were great shows. Mm-hmm. And you can somehow affect 
the mindset of the first show with the next two shows. That's how I look at it. Like we can still affect the average of these shows with the next two shows. Well, this is how I think about it. If I listen, if it goes shitty show, great show, good show, I leave thinking pretty good. It averages, doesn't it? If it goes great show, great show, shitty show, I leave going like that was what, shitty. That was shit. I know. If it goes, <laughs> no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Think of it quite the way you do. Well, I look at it like we're going to feed the meter on this larger thing. But I am going to a three-show run, and I thought the first one was great. Thank. How's you. that? Well, you know, there's there's how I did, and how there's how the band did, and I'm always going to react to how I contributed, mm -hmm. and I thought I could have been just a little bit sweeter, but you know. These, this, these, these, these hooks we talked about, mm -hmm. they're not my inventions. Mm -hmm. And so they, don't, they didn't stem from me. And so I always have Sing to... Sing me all the hooks. <laughs> Sing me all the hooks. Every hook of every song. Okay, Tennessee Jim. Eyes of the World. <laughs> I'm trying to do it in the right key. <laughs> I love kicking that song off. Broke Down Palace. Well, that's interesting because it starts in G. There's actually not a hook in there. It's all vocal. Ah. There's, not, there's nothing happening on the guitar there that you'd go, oh, that's Broke Down Palace. Okay, it's, there's no guitar hook. I see. I see, I see. Uh, but but so, so I have to put myself. Casey Jones. These are all in the right key, by the way. That was very good. These are all in the right pitch. You can play them. I mean, of course. Play along. Right. But um, <laughs> that's very I'm, good. I'm, Thank you, Al. I have, <laughs> I have to, I have to get myself into that way of thinking just a little bit. It's not costume, but it's just a little bit of because I'm not the creator of this music. Mm -hmm. I have to funnel my thinking into that way. Sugar of Magnolia. Thinking. What's that? Sugar Magnolia. Well, there's two parts on that. Bobby's part. Bobby's part is. And then it's kind of Jerry doing a pedal steel ish thing on the guitar. Which is? Well, he's kind of going. You know. This is good. If you don't I do like those this things, part that we've just done, I should have taken the guitar out. <laughs> okay, but you got to go. I have to. I'm working backwards from my my Tom, my leave time. Being, you're being picked up in 40 minutes. Yeah, I gotta. Yeah. But I'm 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 actually looking forward to playing for you tonight, knowing that I've mentioned a few things about the way that I think. Franklin's Tower. The hard one to sing to someone would be Scarlet Begonias because it's almost completely an ensemble song, which blows my mind. I love, love, love Scarlet Begonias because everybody is lining up to make a part of the image that makes this beautiful image. But if you listen to each part on its own, it doesn't quite make sense until you listen to them all. So it's this one blob of sound that's so beautiful. It blew my mind when I first heard Scarlet Begonias. I came from Berkeley College of Music, where you're supposed to understand every layer you're listening to. What's the kick drum doing? What's the snare drum doing? What's the guitar doing? What's the keys doing? All of a sudden, you hear boom, and you listen. You go listen to the bass. And the bass is going, and and Bobby's going boom, 
It's like everybody's taking a different wow. part of the image, uh-huh. but it's not. The oh, outlines aren't it. around the face. I didn't fa- know what you're saying. Before. Everybody's. It's. It's that to me blew my mind when I heard Scarlet Pagoni. It's like oh, I've never heard a sound like that. If you heard any, if you were to solo through each person's part on Scarlet Pagoni, you go, that doesn't make any sense. You put it all together, you're like, holy god, But it's the sound to me of pure happiness. You heard. Ladies and gentlemen, on the next Sal Franken uh, podcast, how you would go from the current healthcare system we had to single payer, how we would make that transition. What a cliffhanger. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's stop. Thank you, man. Thank you. That was awesome. Great. Uh, Well, there you have it. Normally we play Leo Kotke, uh, but uh, it seems fitting to do the dead and. Some of this is uh, John Mayer from uh, Mexico, and uh, some of this is uh, Jerry Garcia. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.